Okay, I did it. I hit the record button. You, you just hit play on your side. And here we are. This is Jay Brown Yoga Talks podcast. My name is Jay Brown. Hello, whoever you are. If you're new, welcome and I almost feel like I have to apologize because you're really not getting me at my best today. If you were here last week, I mentioned that I've been having a hard time and I wish I could say that things got better this week, but they did not. In some ways, they got worse. And it's rare that I'm not really feeling up to doing this, you know. I I usually am able to summon inspiration. But I, I've run out of time and I don't want to take a week off. I feel like if I didn't put the show out, I'd feel worse. And longtime listeners <laughs> might remember in the early formative time of this show, I would just vent everything in the intro. I would have like big time yoga celebrities on and I would do like a 20 minute intro of just like dumping all my emotions and angers and (laughs) pain. And sometimes I think it was maybe useful or it was at least purgative for me, but a lot of times I don't. I don't think it was helpful. I I don't think it served me or the show. So I'm not going to vent everything here. At the same time, I'm not going to try to put on a mask, you know. If I try to fake it, I think those of you who have come to know me over the years, even if you didn't really know, you'd feel it. You'd feel on some level then. I was faking it. So, I guess if you are one of those longtime listeners, maybe I can say something about what's getting me so down in the outro, I'll, I'll say something in the outro. If, if you're one of those folks who wants to stick around, you can. But I, I feel like, I don't know, I don't want to pretend that everything's okay when it's not. And I hope that me not being my usual showman self is okay. I, I got to trust that. I got to trust that it's okay, that I don't, I don't have to put on a big show for you, that I can just let the conversation speak for themselves because they really do. And that continues to really be a saving grace for me. These inquiries into yoga, they are what help me meet these challenges and give me a sense of meaning and purpose. And today's conversation with Steve James is no exception. I don't know if you know Steve. He is the host of the Guru Viking podcast, which I discovered not too long ago. 
And I've watched many of his episodes now. And I have to say, if you enjoy the depth of conversation that I try to have here on this show, then you're definitely going to appreciate Steve and what he's doing because he's got it going on, if you ask me. And after taking in his show on YouTube and then reaching out and finding out that he was familiar with this show and having this rich conversation and connection with him, it really, it spoke to something important that's been going on with me and and I'm really glad to be sharing it with you today. Real quick, before we get to that, I want to thank podcast premium subscribers, Carl Spicer and Joanna Katz. Thanks, Joanna. And Carl, I got your email. It's in my inbox. I've been meaning to email you back. I just haven't gotten to it yet. I will. I really appreciated you reaching out. I appreciate both of you and everybody else who's subscribing for supporting me and the show. If you're newer around here and you appreciate what you're getting from the show and you value it, you could embody that some by becoming a podcast premium subscriber. You get access to the full archives and you help me keep it going. If you want to learn more about becoming a podcast premium subscriber or any of my other stuff, my ongoing live practices and discussions that I offer, everything I'm doing can be found at jbrownyoga.com. Okay, y'all. I think that's just going to have to suffice. Like I said, I will touch base with you on the other side, but let's go ahead and get to this conversation that I had with Steve James. Hello? Oh, hi. Hello. Steve. Hi, should I call you Jay or Jay Brown or how is it done? Jay, Jay is fine. That's hey. what all my friends call me and I'd be very happy for you to call me that as well. Okay. Here. That's great. Nice to meet you, Jay. Are we uh, doing video as well as audio? You know, I'm not going to use it. I don't know how you feel about it, if you like to have it on or not. Sometimes I, I like it better off, but I, if you like to have it on, I'm, I'm fine with it either way. You tell me what you like. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to see you. All right, well, let's leave it on then. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to see you too because I've been watching mm. you. and It's funny. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about that. On some level, I like, that. I think, like to think of podcasting as like old radio for the digital yeah. world and i'm trying to get myself off of youtube so i've done both for you i've listened to some of your episodes just like in headphones and then also watched some of the videos on youtube and i, yeah. I appreciate them both like if i didn't get to see the videos i wouldn't get to see you sitting in your boat like that and <laughs> like that's a cool feeling like there's something that does add yeah. something oh definitely but, but it's been super fun. I, I mentioned to you, I've been going through your old episodes and enjoying them so much. You're, you're asking like the questions and having the conversations that I'm most interested in hearing. Oh, wow. So it's been really enjoyable. And, you know, I'm sure you, you, with you, you've had this experience too, where, especially after you've been doing it for some years, like the key to keeping it like vibrant is the spark of inspiration. Like there's a little... There's some reason in me why I want to talk to somebody. Sometimes it's because of what they're 
studying or some, sometimes it's like an idea I have about them and I'd like to see if, if it's a right idea or whatever. And with you, I have a really fun spark of inspiration that you would have no way of knowing. But <laughs> when I was a young boy, I had a very vivid imagination and I would often create like fantasy worlds for myself. And I created like a fantasy alter ego that I would often like take on. And that fantasy alter ego from my childhood, his name was Steve. And my, I was a very like kind of hyper, even like I am now, sometimes like very outgoing uh, boy. And Steve was um, more calm and more poised. And Steve he thought about what he was going to say before he said it more than me. And especially with this show, like I often try to like some, you know, call my inner Steve up. And so I've been watching you and all the things I'm sort of most insecure about in myself, you do really well. Like you, you oh. pull yourself out of your interviews a lot. You're not always referencing yourself. So anyways, it's super fun for me to talk to you. There's something slightly surreal about it. But I really appreciate you giving me your time today. It's really fun for me. Thank you for doing this. Mm. Oh, that's so generous of you to, 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 say, to say that. It really means a lot coming from you, Jay. Well, that was fun for me when you're familiar with my show. I wouldn't have known that at all. And that put me at ease. I was like, oh, cool. He's listened to the show before. So. Well, yeah, I, your, your show is, I think, one of, it's one of the most, if not the most, famous, longstanding yoga podcast around, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's what I always understood to be the case. Maybe that's not right. I, <laughs> people have said, I don't know if that's true, but I, <laughs> the fact that you listened to this show definitely was fun for me too. Cause like I said, I've been watching your show. And so yeah. I guess for have me, we, like, have I we begun quick, by the way, is this that? it? Are we doing it now? I, we oh, are. This... I hope that's okay. I like to feel oh. like we've already begun. Is that all right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was going to say, I, I have been um, enjoying your show so much. And my first kind of question, I guess, for you is, are you, are you living in a boat right now? Is that, do I have that right? Is that background behind you? Like one of those little house boats and where are you in a boat right now? Yes, that's right. Uh, some people ask, um, am I in a shed? Have I been banished to the shed? Or maybe I'm in an attic or a basement or something. I've been locked there, perhaps by a family, ashamed uh, of me or something like this. No, it's not the case. I'm actually on a boat. Yeah. In the UK, we have these uh, man-made canals. Um, they're uh, narrow waterways. And so we had, in the old days before they had uh, rail, rail uh, travel, etc., uh, we transported most of the goods that way around the country along these man-made canals in these barges, which, you know, we call them canal boats or narrow boats, six foot ten wide, uh, they, they mostly are. And my, mine is 57 uh, feet long. And, uh, you know, in the old days, they would be dr they'd be dragged along uh, the canal by a pony who would be on what they call the towpath, sort of drag, drag the boats along. They're easy to move. You can move them actually just by hand, even though they're steel. They just, you can, you know, guide them through the water like that. But uh, yeah, but now, of course, they have engines and so on. We don't transport many goods this way anymore but we do live on them. So I live on that in the UK. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been to London a few times and when I would walk from the Airbnb that I was staying at to try yoga uh, in Camden, 
there were those, I had, I would walk by along those waterways and I would see those boats. And sometimes I would see smoke coming out from the wood burning stove. And I would think, who lives in those boats? You, you live in the, one of those boats. How do you, are there a lot of people who do that? Like, do you have to pay for a place to park it? Like, how does that work? Yeah, there's uh, two basically different ways you can do it. You can pay for a place to park it. Uh, you can get canals, certain canal side spaces you can, uh, you can buy. Or you can pay for a marina spot. We have inland marinas here as well, of course. Uh, or you can do something called continuous cruising. And in continuous cruising, you have to, you have to pay a license to be on the canals. But other than that, you don't pay for where you stay. So you have to move every two weeks a certain distance. Uh, so there are a lot of people actually that live that way. They continuously cruise, moving from uh, place to place. And you can do that for free or do you still have to pay some amount to have that license, I guess, right? Yeah, you have to pay for the light. It's not a lot, but you have to yeah. pay for the license, which um, you know goes towards the uh, upkeep of the canal, I think, and the organization that regulates things and so on. But it's pretty free. It's one of the last ways to live a more, if you want, itinerant lifestyle here in the UK. I mean, that's amazing. Again, there's, I can't even think of many opportunities that human beings still have on the planet to live, particularly in like an urban setting without having to pay the exorbitant rents that it costs normally to live in those places. Wow. So are you alone on that boat? Do you have a partner or? Yeah, um, this is a solo. It's my sort of bachelor pad, you could say. Solo bachelor pad. But, you know, I think you have something similar in the U.S. with the RV community. Yes, uh, the, the, the van, van life. That's a new thing. Yeah, I have a couple of friends yeah. with vans, yeah. But, of course, this boat is much larger than an RV or a, a van. And it's basically an apartment in a straight line. Uh, each room, you know, next to the other. So I'm sitting now here in what they call the saloon, which is the living room, I guess. Uh, which is mostly, as you can see, books and uh, things like that. And then I have the kitchen just behind it. And then there's a bathroom. Uh, then again, and then beyond that, the the bedroom or the or the um, cabin, as they call it. And so, yeah, it's it's basically like a narrow apartment that's just long. <laughs> wow. And do you feel the movement of the water or the canal? Is there a lot of like? that kind of movement always happening in it. I'm just, yeah. I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time on boats. So I guess I don't have a lot of experience. Oh yeah. Well, next time you're in the UK, you must come and visit me and then we'll go on a, we'll go on a, a trip or so a day trip. It's really fun actually. But yeah, of course we can feel, you can feel the, the water moving. It's not tidal being in, in uh, land. So one doesn't feel the tides, but if there's wind or any kind of breeze, which there is in the UK a lot. Yeah, of course you feel the movement or if a boat comes by and you're moored up, like tied up to the side, and if they go very fast, which sometimes they do, yeah, the boat moves. And if there's a storm like there just was, we've just had some big storms here in the UK. Because it's a steel hull, it's very dramatic. The rain is loud and dramatic. The wind is howling. Yeah, it's good. It's, I like it. It's sort of epic. Well, you don't mind that because I, I read about how you've done like outdoor survival training, yeah. which again, like you are like my alter ego. Cause I grew up in the suburbs and then moved to the big city. And I've often contemplated how soft I am and how I would, I've never had experiences. In fact, I had someone on the show, a friend who does Wim Hof method. 
and he came to my house and actually did an ice bath with a bath with me. And it was a very illuminating experience. Like it occurred to me that I've never actually experienced a full range of temperature in my life because I've always lived in an air conditioned environment, wore coats and lived this suburban urban life, very removed from the elements. And to just realize, wow, I've never even experienced uh, the range of temperature that I've experienced is so small. <laughs> so you've spent a lot of time. I guess I'm curious, when did you, I guess first, when did you uh, move into the boat? How long have you been in the boat? Oh, it'll be six, six years this June, this May or June. Mm-hmm. Okay. So okay. But yeah, actually uh, regarding the uh, outdoors survival uh, things, that's actually one of the reasons that I, uh, initially started doing that that sort of training is exactly what you described it's a mystery the outdoors you know and not only the outdoors but what happens when things go wrong in the outdoors that's that's the thing if something goes wrong um, there's some kind of problem injury or m- one becomes isolated or something like that what are the priorities how long does it take you to die of cold of hunger of thirst what are the priorities? How do you order your priorities in an outdoor situation? So it actually becomes very much a self-discovery as well as a discovery of the outdoors because, you know, what, what's, what's likely to kill me first? Well, newsflash, it's not food. It's wind and rain. I suppose people mostly know that. But if you get cold, you, you'll die much, you know, four hours, you can, you can die from that sort of thing. You can go a month without food. I mean, it's not pleasant. You can do it. So part of that training, we would go days, sometimes up to a week without food. Just to just, and be very active, you know, still having to uh, do all the activity things that you have to do in sort of survival, simulated survival situations and think and make decisions, etc. So you experience yourself without, you know, hungry, really. And then you, what's it like when you can't generate the body heat that you're used to generating when you're three or four days in and you haven't taken any calories? What's it like? It's really good to discover that and realize that in some ways the body is extremely resilient. And the mind also, yeah, of course, it's difficult. It's upsetting. Um, but you get through it and you realize, wow, there's more, a little bit more strength in there than I realized. And then also you can respect things more like, well, okay, uh, I can go without food. But if I get wet and I don't have any external heat source or I can't insulate myself, I'm going to die really quick. So you start to realize what, you know, have a, a bit of a clearer understanding of one's strengths and weaknesses as an organism. And as a person mentally, et cetera. And the importance of things like teamwork or morale and this sort of thing. I think these are great lessons that you can bring out. And so, and then just feeling more at home in the world, understanding nature a little bit better, only a little bit better makes a huge difference. And of course, you arrive on your first day and you don't know anything. And that's fine. That's a training. You're not, you don't expect you to be an expert when you show up on the first day. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a training. And uh, then you learn. And you just you can dispel that mystery or un- unravel that mystery and, and dispel that darkness and start to gain some sort of confidence and footing. Um, so that basic dynamic of going into the mystery, of discovering things, especially things that I don't know about or I'm uh, unsure about or make me feel, should we say, vulnerable or I'm maybe afraid of to some degree, going into into that kind of a situation and learning and establishing an understanding. It's something that's very appealing to me as a general dynamic. It sounds like you, you're similar by the sounds of it, what you're saying. I, I am to some degree, but 
not at as young an age and not to the degree that I would put myself in those. I've never put myself in those situations. I, I get it. And I actually would like to do it more, but I guess I'm curious, where does that come from? And you like, how does that impetus come into you? Do you have an idea about that? I think it might be uh, typology or just how, how, I'm, how I'm wired, I think. It must be. Uh, I always had that uh, impulse, I think, from a young age. I remember being, uh, in order to get over fear of the dark, for instance, I had a wooden sword. You know, I was into martial arts at those days, so I had a wooden sword. And in the night, I remember on, on a couple of occasions walking through the house with this wooden sword. I knew rationally. I don't know how old I must have been, five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe, I don't know, any, any time around there. I knew rationally there was nothing in the dark to frighten me. But of course, my imagination conjured all sorts of things. So I walked through and I almost basically challenged the darkness or whatever was in the darkness to come and get me. And I knew that if it came from behind, because it's dark, you can't tell where it's coming from, then, if, you know, there'd be no way of defending myself probably from behind if a monster came. So, but I was sort of challenging the, the dark. And then I remember laying down on the ground and going under the sofa, which, which, which had, was a little raised. So I made myself ex extremely vulnerable, if you like, by then being even not e easily able to maneuver. And I went under then. I was sort of saying, okay, then, if there's something in the dark, come and get me. Come and get me then. And it was a sort of challenge, you know, going towards the, the fear. And that sort of says defiance and, um, yeah. Facing that, facing that dynamic, essentially. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Yeah, who knows? Uh, impulses from within. That Again, that's from an early age. I have two young daughters, and, you know, they, one of them has more of that, and one of them has not so much of that. So it, it does seem like you do arrive with a certain amount of something already, you know? <laughs> Definitely. So do you go to college? Like, when do you start to, I guess my question, get into like spiritual studies or traditions or when does meditation and yoga and those things start to become of interest to you? Mm. Well, actually from around that same time at a young age, uh, I was uh, raised in a Catholic context, actually, but it's a Catholic context without the doctrinal side. So my mother had this idea of a private faith, the idea of uh, going to the mass, which is the, the ritual that the Catholics do each week. Uh, they're kind of, I suppose, Catholic puja. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you go there, everyone knows that, of course. But anyway, you, you go to the mass. And it's not a celebration in the view that I was uh, given of a kind of, we, let's all get together and celebrate thinking the same thing and believing the same thing and sharing that kind of view. It was more an opportunity, a ritual opportunity for contemplation and connection with whatever, God, the divine, oneself, quiet, stillness, sort of nebulous options there. And so I was an altar boy also eventually in that context and for, for many years, and I enjoyed the ritual of it. As an altar boy, you, it's a choreographed uh, series of movements, so it's more or less the same each time. You go, you bring the candle over here, you take the cup over there, and so always this ritual. And I would just get into the ritual and just immerse in the ritual. And it wasn't really religious in the, it was religious in, in the sort of mystical sense, but it wasn't religious in the kind of heaven and hell. These are the, these are the rules. This is the doctrines, et cetera, et cetera. We, we weren't allowed to go. My mother wouldn't let us go to Sunday school, which is where they take the children after that service and they teach them all the rules of the religion. She said that 
like politicians, there's a joke, Billy Connolly joke, that if someone wants to be a politician, that should disqualify them from ever being a politician. <laughs> and so it was the same thing. So if you want to teach Sunday school, you know, probably, uh, you know. So therefore, I didn't have any resistance. I was also at that time from age five, very interested in martial arts. I was studying karate in a very traditional kind of context. And I just loved it. I got into it. I kind of got it from a young age, you know, as young people can do. And I'd read, of course, from there naturally, books about martial arts, you, you end up reading, you know, Musashi, and you end up reading Art of War, and then you end up reading about the way aspect, the Do aspect of Karate Do, right? The, the, the philosophy and the religious context of, of Japan. And that, of course, leads to things like, you know, Buddhism and etc. And then you start reading about that and, and start practicing yoga. We had a yoga book. So I would do yoga and this sort of thing. I didn't, it wasn't. I, I heard Richard Hittleman. You were a Richard Hittleman guy, right? I've had yeah. a bunch of people on the show. I always ask them what's in there. They say, oh, I start from a book and it's, it's Richard Hittleman. Or sometimes it's Godfrey Devereaux, who you studied with, I read. Yeah. Godfrey Devereaux has been my main yoga, really my only real yoga teacher, actually. And what I mean by that is the person who I study with, train with, qualified as a teacher with Godfrey, also a yoga teacher with him. So yeah, he's been, and he's been a guest on your show, which is how I first discovered your show, actually. Uh -huh. I saw the episode of Godfrey that you did actually some years ago. Yes. There was an old one you did. I don't know if you've done one recently, but there was no, an no, old I, had, I should reach out to him again. Thanks for reminding me. But I remember I had one of his books early on that was just such a good articulation of things that was really helpful to me. So it was a trip to get to talk to him. But very cool. I mean, of all the people, again, those are like Richard Hittleman and Godfrey Devereaux. I associate them with a very, like when I first came to yoga in the early 90s, before the internet, there wasn't right. as many sources of information. So those, those are two sources that a lot of people honed into. So you were practicing off of the Hittleman book? Yeah, yeah. And there was a lady as well um, whose name I forget now. I can see her, but I can't remember. Around that same era, um, a book we also had of hers, loose, which was in loose leaf form. And, you know, I, I didn't understand really. There was no yoga teacher. I didn't understand. I just follow along. And to me, it all seemed part of the same thread of investigation and i understand that there are very important differences between the different traditions and faiths and systems and i understand that of course but at the time my curiosity didn't feel those differences to be contradictions or clashes or who's right and wrong it was more sort of a rich tapestry uh, so yeah that's that's how it began yeah i see and so when was it that you studied with godfrey that was in my 20s and so that's what, 90s? I don't know how old you are. I don't want to assume. I don't know if you want oh, to date yourself, but. Sure. Well, I was born in 1986. Okay. So I'm 35 now. So I suppose 10 years ago, um, I was in my mid-20s. So yeah, And that was in here. London? Actually, yeah. I was living in London at that time. I think it was a little earlier than that that I began, but it was through, during that period. Yeah. I actually saw something of Godfrey's or read something of his, he was talking about um, Vinyasa Kram, I think, sort of sequencing. I think that's what he, the term he used. And he was talking about the, uh, that there should be no struggle in yoga posture practice. Hmm. And that when the neuromuscular, and I'm almost quoting him word for word here, when the neuromuscular preparation is adequate, the body will just take itself there. And if there is struggle, then all you have to do is go back, do some more of the preparatory steps, and when the body's ready, it'll just take itself there. 
And that was something that I resonated with and would often say in other contexts. And when I, that sort of thing, and I saw, because I knew that from my other trainings that I'd had, for instance, martial arts, right, music, etc. I knew that very well, that the difference between being able to achieve something uh, just about and being able to, in a certain sense, own a shape or own a, a, a skill, in, in a sense. Uh, it's a very different experience. And you can get there quicker, or you can build up into it. And if you build up into it, and you're really able to inhabit it, it's a very different experience. And I think sometimes getting there quicker, pushing to get there quicker, Godfrey would also say, layering tension over tension to give the illusion of openness. Hmm. So that sort of idea of forcing oneself into that a posture, for example, now we're talking yoga, right? Mm -hmm. um, that kind of overriding of the of the body, um, it can have short-term results, but of course we know, I think everyone knows by now, that, that uh, it's a glass ceiling in the neuromuscular unfolding. And it doesn't even really, it's not very easy to sustain that. One was always fighting with oneself to, to keep the ground ones stolen, actually. So that idea that I encountered from him, I thought this resonated so much for me. I thought this person is saying, what I think in other contexts, uh, and then, of course, that was the initial hook. And then when I studied with Godfrey Moore, I, I learned a great deal because he's, he's pursued that avenue, you know, very, very much. And uh, I learned a lot from, from Godfrey. Yeah. I think probably saved a lot of time, too, because I know that's not the way yoga's... That that's what I was just going to say. I was going to say Godfrey saved you so much trouble, you know, honestly, oh, yeah. because by establishing those ideas early on, you didn't necessarily have to fall into the same pitfalls that a lot of us fell into and then had to like undo, <laughs> you yep. know, like if you can, I think I would have just bounced off yoga. I think I would have bounced off it. I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have bought the paradigm of just forcing the body and this sort of desperate attempt to be someone else. Mm. This desperate attempt to reject oneself. Pranayama is often taught that way. A kind of, um, the implication you know, God, the way Godfrey, you know, this is a bit of a Godfrey fest now, never mind, seems you brought him up. But I'm very grateful to what I learned from him. But he'd often talk, teach about pr pranayama, starting with his natural breath. And we do a lot with the natural breath. And a lot of pranayama is taught straight away with lengthening the breath, changing the breath. The implication can be, in the context, in, if one doesn't acquaint oneself with the natural breath, the implication can be, there's something wrong with your breath as it is. So we're going to change it. We're going to lengthen it. We're going to deepen it. We're going to hold it. We're going to do it to account. Now, all of those things are really cool to do, and they're very fascinating, mm -hmm. especially if they're within the context of a sort of, first of all, an intimacy with the breath, a familiarity with the breath. And then you can do things with it. But if that first step is missed, the intimacy with the breath is missed, the natural breath is missed, and one just right away starts to modify, then the implication can be your breath, we're lengthening it because it's too short. We're deepening it because it's too shallow. Even if it's not said, it's, it's implied. And a lot of yoga is taught that way too. Rather than intimacy with the body, feeling the body with sensitivity, honesty, um, openness. Now, you, yogis, of course, can tell I'm a little bit playing on the yamas here. Um, generosity, etc., presence. Rather than starting there and then going off into all sorts of interesting directions as, as, you, as you like, if we don't start there, we start to right away impose shapes on the body. There's, there can be a rejection of the body. Body's not good enough. The body, we have to feel like this. We have to look like that. We have to discipline the body and do these sorts of things. And without, first of all, 
intimacy with the body or intimacy with the breath. I think it can be at least an implied rejection of the body and a rejection of the breath, which is in line with certain um, anti-body, anti-life, anti-sex um, mm -hmm. religious okay, philosophies. Well, so, wait, 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 wait. You jumped way ahead there. I'd like yeah. to go there where you just went. But well, I want to go back first because you said a lot there that I think is interesting. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate what you're saying because I think you're right. And I have all these teachers I interact with, and it's been a, a conversation that's gone on a lot over the last few years, especially teachers moving to invitational language, teachers moving into somatic movement forms for much of the reasons that you're stating because there are uh, yogic traditions that were uh, passed down in ways that are kind of like... I heard your Lauren Roche, your first ever episode, you guys talked about this, this kind of like uh, almost a dominant paradigm in terms of how things are experienced. And I agree that there's something else that happens when you establish an intimacy with yourself and a sort of a place of nurturing compassion from within before you start exploring whatever else you're exploring. And um, during I, the exploration and throughout yeah. the exploration, ne never leaving that behind. I completely agree. What I would say though is, you know, I did start out in, you know, Ashtanga Vinyasa, Power Vinyasa, New York yoga scene. Um, and I studied Iyengar method and I was absolutely doing that thing that you said earlier of like layering tension upon tension and pretending it was open, <laughs> me opening. Um, and ultimately the way that I was able to, um, bring myself more into my body actually in the way that we're discussing is regulating breath, like kind of, I needed to do something and I was overdoing everything. So in a way, to your point, overdoing breathing was better than overdoing pushing my body in poses, at least initially. And it gained facility with my breath. And I've ultimately come to what you've said. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think you need to be regulating your breath necessarily. Uh, in fact, sometimes you're right. Regulating breath does kind of communicate something about us or like it puts us in a place of lacking or something like you're describing as opposed to just observing the wonder of what's already there. So I get what you're saying, but I do think as like a device, as like even uh, a process for some people, some amount of like breath regulation, even off the bat can be useful. Cause mm -hmm. if somebody's like thinking about everything else other than here, and you're saying in a somatic way, Hey, explore this, or you're inviting something and their minds like not even in their body to explore what you're saying they like need something to do. So I find like giving them, and that does come from Desika Char teachings. They really emphasize Ujjayi Pranayama a lot, but I think your point is still well-made. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's sometimes a usefulness to um, some amount of like people need something to do, don't they? Well, yes, I'm not advocating a, a radical non-doing. Uh, I'm saying the context of the doing. So mm -hmm. the context of the doing, so it's not the doing itself necessarily, breath control, breath practices, I, I think I said, they're fascinating and wonderful and very interesting, and they have many good uses, and they're also very fun, and I, I'm not saying that one shouldn't do them. I'm saying that the context of intimacy with one's breath um, is important, or rather, the absence of that uh, is uh, problematic. And what's the, what's the problem? Well, like I said, there, 
these sorts of all these means of control rather than being a means of, as you say, exploring, unfolding, a process of discovery and even um, etc. can become a sort of furthering of an alienation with the body. We're, because we're lengthening your breath because it's too short. We're deepening it because it's too shallow. Mm. Whereas that doesn't have to be the implication of, of right. those sorts of practices at all. It doesn't have to be. Lengthening the breath does not imply your breath is too short necessarily. So I think the importance of, this is what I was saying, I, I gleaned from Godfrey the way he, he would approach things. The importance of, first of all, being able to be with your natural breath, or at least the context established of that, that informs the way you then do any kind of pranayama practice in the same way that intimacy with the body in, in, informs any, any asana practice you might do. It, inf- it contextualizes that you're taking the body with you as you, do, as you do your asana practice, rather than imposing the asana practice on the body, hoping that at some point something will happen, some magical thing will happen, that if I could just get myself to do that, then suddenly it's, it's something, you know, leaving the body behind. It becomes a sort of civil war in oneself. So I, I'm open to all the techniques and methods and all the doings, and I think they're actually so cool and wonderful. I have no problem with them at all. It's the context, I suppose, that I'm trying to uh, talk to here. I really appreciate that. I, I just like started this training with people. We've spent the first several months just t- establishing these different kinds of contexts for practice, exactly as you're describing, because I think you're right. You can have the same forms, just like you can have like the same song or whatever, and two people can engage those forms and have completely different communications or you get completely different experiences from them, depending on the viewpoint or the context that the the person who's engaging them holds. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, and that's what I get from your show a lot, like understanding those kinds of contexts has been helpful to get clarity around, Oh, what's useful for me or what's, what's my path in all of this or whatever. It's helped to have clarity around that, to understand that. And I think a lot of that does come from some sort of comparative analysis of like trying different techniques or trying on different uh, traditions even. And I know you've studied lots of other stuff besides just yoga with Gottfried. Um, so rather than just list them all, what, are, what do you think of as your biggest influences and in what you do in terms of a practitioner or a teacher or a coach? I know sometimes you use that word. Um, what are your biggest influences other than Godfrey and yoga? What are the other things that you feel like you're drawing upon most? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to answer that question because one's influences aren't always conscious. And I think, in fact, sometimes the most profound and influ- influential influences, if I can use that tautology, are so influential that one doesn't even recognize them, uh, the sources of them. It seems just obvious. Uh, but a lot of the things we take for granted are, uh, you know, not necessarily, they're obvious to us, perhaps, but not that obvious, maybe to everybody else or in, in other situations in other times, in other places. So I always feel a little uh, like when this sort, of, this sort of a list one's, you know, missing out on some of the most profound ones. So of course, I think I'd have to say, the broad sweep of thought that characterizes Western civilization, very rich, incredible. And uh, that, I think, hugely influential. Um, of course, then also the, the benefit of the interaction between that civilization and other philosophies and religions and cultures of the world, sort of rich dialogue that 
we seem to be able to at least have some degree of these days. Amazing, I think. But uh, anyway, in terms of, I also studied, my main meditation teacher has been Shinzen Young. Uh, he's a meditation teacher. So if we want, if you want me to give you names. What does he, because he come from a particular tradition? I don't know. I don't know him. Yeah, he, uh, well, he was ordained as a Shingon monk in the 70s. He, he, was, uh, he went there to pursue a PhD and ordained as a Shingon monk, which is a sect of Japanese Vajrayana. Um, or tantric Buddhism, if you want. Mm. And so he wanted to do his PhD. His idea was to do his thesis on, on that sect, which had been not very studied at that time. And that was going to be his academic bailiwick. Uh, but they wouldn't tell him anything. They said, this is for transformation, not for research. So in order to do his research, he, you know, I think he memorized their liturgy and then they let him in anyway, eventually. And he, he ordained there. Uh, but quite quickly, he decided, he realized that, oh no, he was far more interested in its its possibility from a meditative point of view than he was even academically. So he abandoned his PhD and embarked then on a path of of being uh, you know professional contemplative, I suppose. And so he he studied there. He studied a lot of Zen, did a lot of Zen training. He's now in his seventies. Um, did a lot of Zen training, and he did lots of uh, what you I suppose properly know as vipassana training, right? That sort of thing. Is that what you studied with him, or did he teach you a, a wide range of meditation well, techniques? The, the the great thing about Shinzen is he has this idea of uh, attempting to create a sort of taxonomy of these practices, a kind of way of categorizing them and uh, understanding them uh, without diluting them. So one of the things he says is that he considers it a great achievement if one of his students could go into any meditation retreat in the world and do the practice that they're doing, not secretly do you know, another practice, and understand how to operate in that practice on the terms that are being put forth in that retreat. So that's his, I think, one of his great contributions is this attempt to systematize these practices and these traditions and boil them down to key concepts, core skills being developed, etc. So I think that's uh, you know something that's very amazing about him. And then he's his, his also extremely interested in then scientific dialogue. So he works at University of Arizona now. He co-runs the SEMA lab with Dr. Jay Sanguinetti at University of Arizona. And they're working on uh, ultrasound neuromodulation, uh, you know, basically zapping the brain with ultrasound, <laughs> zapping things like the PCC, which people like Job, Dr. Job Brewer, you know, Brown have have suggested something to do with the self, right? The sense of self and so on. So basically looking at what, how can we, um, what can we learn about the brain? What can we learn about the brain as it, and the mind as it interacts with cont contemplative techniques through neuroscience. So he's also rather on the cutting edge of, of that. These days, that's, I think, his main passion, actually. He still teaches, of course, but that's his main passion. So I was very lucky to encounter in him somebody who had a, a broad uh, openness to all the traditions and not an attempt to say, this is the real way. All those other traditions, they do it wrong, or they're not as good. We have the real way. They, lapsed, they, they lack step three. We have steps one to 10, and they have steps one to 10, but they forget step threes. You know? So we have the secret thing, and this sort of uh, uh, way that some people can teach. He doesn't do that. He's, his motto is, whatever works, whatever works. So one can really acquaint oneself with a broad variety of practices, and more importantly, maybe an ability to enter into different practice contexts on the terms of that practice context. Um, I mean, I learned many other things. He also emphasized long sitting, 
sitting for long periods of time, multiple hours and so on, which I think is something else that's been very influential to me. So, uh, yeah, things like that. Uh, my own influences, yeah, uh, I, I, that's another one. I mean, I could go on and on and on about my martial arts teachers. You know, my- well, I mean, it's interesting to me because I, it's another very cool thing that you've done that I think is almost... I don't know. It's such a rare thing in kind of the digital world of YouTube necessarily, but you have videos of you just sitting for an hour or sitting for two hours. You just put the camera on and sit there. And I'm I'm very intrigued by that because you also have like a, a movement colon method that you created, which I saw little bits of, which to me seems much more like somatic movement kind of practices. I'm curious to hear you speak about it some, but when I can, when I think of those different things, when I think of like a somatic movement thing, and then I think of like long sitting, those don't necessarily go together in my mind. Like long sitting sometimes for me associates with kind of what you pointed to earlier, that there's some place that higher consciousness or often like a, if you take it all the way, it's a ending the cycle of rebirth or escaping the cycle of rebirth as opposed to you know, entering in on like a more tantric path or something. So first let's talk about your, your, um, your movement method that you, you developed, and then we'll go back to the meditation. So tell me about this movement koan method. Why did you develop it and how would you describe it for people? I guess. Well, it's described as, um, a combination or a blend of joint nourishing movements and body-based mindfulness. That's if you get the DVD, that's what it'll say on the back. <laughs> I think that's not bad. That's not bad description. It sounds good. Um, yeah. Joint right. so, nourishing in particular. That's a, mm-hmm. it seems to me that's very carefully chosen. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And of course, what's a, so that's the movement part, the joint nourishing, etc. Yeah. And, and, um, and uh, also a lot of cross, um, cross body patterning one arm going in one direction, the other arm going in the other direction, this sort of thing, you know, like tapping your head and rubbing your tummy at the same time, that sort of idea. So there's a lot of that sort of neuroplasticity work there. Um, but also the koan part, of course, a koan is a, as a, as a, as a Japanese word used in the Zen context. This isn't quite right, but it's sort of a training device. They sometimes say Zen riddle. Okay. It's not really a Zen riddle, but that's one way of thinking about it. So you, you get a, a phrase like what's the, Question like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Or does a dog have Buddha nature? Your Roshi or your Zen teacher might give that to you and you work on it and you try to um, manifest and demonstrate some sort of answer to that. It's not rational exactly, but it's maybe it's like a Zen rationale, maybe. So here in, in Movement Coin Method, it means that we're using the body in these movements as a lens of inquiry. So for instance, principles like minimum necessary muscular activation. Um, minimum we might try to do movement with minimum necessary muscular activation, minimum possible muscular activation. You'd be totally laying on the ground, totally relaxed, right? Shavasana style. But so we, we want, there's a certain degree of tension and activation necessary for, to perform whatever the movement is or the posture. So we'll experiment with that and we'll explore that. And there are specific movements and postures that are designed around ex, ex, experimenting with that. So you have to question the layers of tension. Do I need this layer of tension? Do I need this layer of tension? And maybe you do, and maybe you don't. And one of the things that you discover in, in a process like that is that the tension that we're using is not only for what it appears to be for, which is the posture, the movement. There are other uses tension can play, uh, can serve. For example, if one uh, starts to relax certain layers, one might find that the 
muscular fatigue spikes, the feeling of muscular fatigue spikes as one starts to relax certain layers of, of tension. And well, because one of the reasons, one of the uses we have for tension, not only to stand there, it's also to, in a certain sense, brace against feeling as a kind of anesthesia. Like, now, if we're going to get, uh, I don't know, it's an injection at the hospital. So, you know, a lot of times you, you tense your body, right? And so when you start to relax those layers of tension, you're going to feel more, for example. But of course, using muscular tension to paper over or, or anesthetize the, the, con the product of muscular tension, which is muscular fatigue, it works short term, but it's, it's sort of putting fuel in the fire in a way. Well, it right? comes back. I'm turning 50 this year, young man. So oh, I know you can only do it for so long. It comes back on you for sure. Yeah. And even in the short term, it's going to wear you out quicker because you're using muscular tension to, to try and anesthetize the, the, what you can feel because of the muscular tension. So it's sort of like uh, snowballing. You have to, it's an arms race, basically. And it's uh, also paradoxical, just to throw one thing in, is that you're doing practices because you want to feel better. And so sometimes you relax and it bring you, you reveal how much pain is already there. <laughs> like it brings out stuff initially. And then I think that can um, deter people, but you kind of have to go through that process. I think to, what do they say? You have to feel it to heal it is the old saying, right? Yeah, um, that's right. And I think uh, attempting to feel better, we're all trying to do that. The reason someone would engage in a cathartic or self-punishing practice in which one feels bad for most of it is because there's an assumption or a feeling that later on it'll pay off. So we have that temporal dimension of, of motivation. What feels good now and what feels good tomorrow? What's going to feel good next week or what's going to feel good when I retire? Maybe it affects how I spend now. And so we all of us have that different understanding of delayed gratification and you know this sort of thing. So I think all that comes in. And it's very, because we can't see the future, that those are the sorts of areas that make us susceptible to, uh, you know, we can be misled by things we hear, things we're told, uh, people who can assure us that by doing this thing, it'll, it'll work out well in the end. So, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. It's, it's, my point is, it's difficult to, to tell. So anyway, with Movement Co Method, a lot of these things, we present them as inquiry. So it's an investigation questioning the layers of tension. I'm not saying relax excess tension, relax. You know, I mean, how do we know what it is? Yeah. It's a questioning process. It's an investigation and it's going to change. It's not relaxed or tensed. It's an investigation between those two extremes. I think that's the, it requires wakefulness, of course, certain wakefulness. If you say, oh, I'm going to relax, I'm going to relax all the time. That's my strategy, non-doing, as you were pointing to earlier. That's my strategy. That's an extreme position. It's not tenable. Or I'm always going to push, always feel the fear and do it anyway. Always push through no matter what, you know, I will conquer. That's useful sometimes, but it's not a tenable strategy as your main thing. We need to be able to move between them or somewhere in the middle, case-by-case uh, -case basis, have that sensitivity. I think that's, so that's part of the sorts of things we do in Movement Coin Method, yeah. Well, I also was reading that you work with a woman named, what's her name, Michaela Boehm, did I say it right? Yeah. And I'm just curious, she has the nonlinear movement method too, which I find interesting in terms of even what you're talking about, how 
there's a movement component or like a microcosmic element to practices, but then there's sort of the macro of it. So for a long time, I had a very linear idea in mind that I was climbing the limbs of Patanjali's ladder and doing my asana and my pranayama and my meditation. And if, like you said, if I keep doing it and I make myself sit, even though I'm in my knees hurting, if I make myself do it for hours and I just really am determined and I push through, I'll get to the samadhi. And uh, didn't pan out that way. <laughs> so mm. I think I definitely had to find my way to more non-linear teachings or more non-linear types of practices. Mm. Uh, so I'm curious how you met Michaela or what, you, what, what do you take from her work and working with her? It seems like it's informed what you're doing a lot. Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, Michaela's Nonlinear Movement Method is something quite different to what I was describing just moments ago. Mm. Um, uh, well, perhaps, I mean, well, maybe I'll start with how I met Michaela. Well, we had a client in common, uh, gosh, eight years ago, maybe something like this, a client in common. And uh, we met that way. And uh, we hit it off uh, creatively and uh, intellectually. And so we started working together. And we've been working together now for, I mean, full time, really, for the last seven years, eight years, something like that. So we, before, you know, before March 2020, we traveled around 50 plus events a year, traveling around all the world doing things. Also with private clients, we share them and we have our individual ones and we, sh we share them, work with them together, etc. So we're, we've been a team, actually, really, uh, for uh, several years. And what have I learned from her or taken from her work? I mean, it's our, you know, she has her stream and I have my stream, but we, we have our, a, a thing we, we, we developed together as well. And uh, I've learned a great deal from Michaela. Oh yeah, tons. She's, you know, exper extremely experienced uh, counselor actually. And is well known, I think for, for instance, uh, Will, Will Smith recently wrote an autobiography in which Michaela has a chapter uh, about their work together. Um, and so she's, you know, th this sort of thing has been secret for a long time. Uh, she, you know, she doesn't talk about her, her, her well-known clients, hasn't done for years, but now they started talking about her and more and more you start to hear um, people she's worked with uh, beginning to, you know, talk about her and credit her with a, a lot of benefit they've received. So, of course, to work with someone who's so, uh, uh, so good, excellent <laughs> in her field, is it, one can't help but learn something. She's got a tremendous work ethic. She's very intelligent, um, and yeah, uh, I mean, I, I can I can go on much much more. But what haven't I learned from Michaela would be maybe an easier question to answer. <laughs> well, I guess my question is: that's interesting that you say that that she sort of you refer to her as a counselor, and she does hmm. what's called the nonlinear movement method, which you said is different from the movement koans you're you're oh, working yeah. with. I'm kind of curious about that. That. Sure. Is the nonlinear movement method, what, what is it? <laughs> or what can you no. say about it? Maybe don't, not what is it? You can't boil it down, I'm sure. It's nonlinear. But what uh, could you say about it to help us have a sense of, of what it is or how is it different from what you described when you were talking about the yeah. movement koan? Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, I'll say that Michaela teaches regularly nonlinear classes online that people can check out if they like, and there's things on, on the Internet. Um, that people can look at if they want to look that up. Just search Michaela Bohem, uh, the nonlinear movement method. But in brief, it's a sort of the way it came to be is, you know, M Michaela in her teens uh, learned a certain sort of central channel practice, a way of moving the body rather intuitively, 
Uh, I mean, she, she learned it from a teacher, but the, the means of the practice is one feels inside the central channel from a Kashmir Shaivistic uh, context and uh, sort of opening. And as you, I expect, know, in many of the inner yogas in Buddhism and um, other contexts too, there is an emphasis on not only the visualization of the different subtle body anatomy, but also a feeling. So one becomes acquainted with the chakra, say, in Tummo practice by uh, one of the initial stages is, is to rest the attention on, on that on that point and, and just to sort of feel what's there to be felt, essentially. And so this sort of somatic feeling aspect is, uh, anyway, later on, she uh, co-founded a rehab in Los Angeles for, it was a dual diagnosis, so addiction and also cluster B, what's now called access to. Uh, personality uh, disorders, things like, you know, psychopath, sociopath, you know, BPD, things like that. So this is sort of a dual diagnosis rehab. And one of the things there that she worked with a lot is, of course, when someone starts to, uh, you know, is not, hasn't have access to their usual substances, what's going to happen? Well, what, what are the reasons people use substances? There are many reasons people use them, but one of the reasons is because it's painful to be in their body. It's painful to be them because there have been traumas and there have been difficulties. And so one of the things that people do, not everyone, but one of the things that some people do is use substances of various kinds, right? To sort of ease the pain, numb the pain, et cetera, et cetera. Or sometimes reenact the, you know, the injury. All these things are possible with, with, with trauma. And so naturally, if someone starts to uh, detox from from those habit patterns as well as the substances themselves. Of course, this is part of their defense and coping mechanism. So they're going to come into contact with their pains, their, their traumas, their difficulties. And so one of the methods that so nonlinear came, in a sense, really began to come together, I think, at that time, where she'd have people get on hands and knees, for example. And this is basically how nonlinear works, although I'm talking about that iteration. You get on hands and knees and feel the body, and, and just move the body, allow the movement to uh, express, uh, rather allow the feeling to express in the body. Not so it's basically like, inviting people, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's basically like interpretive movement, dance kind of well, thing? That's exactly what it isn't actually. So I was about to say, it's not that one expresses to the outside what one's feeling. So, you know, if you, it's not that you feel anger and then you make an angry face and you shake your fists to embody or enact the anger, or one feels fear, so you curl up into a ball to enact the fear in a kind of theatrical way. Um, it's not like that at all. The movements may not look anything like what one's feeling. And in fact, it's, uh, at a certain point, one, you don't know what you're feeling, actually. Sometimes you don't know what you're feeling. It's, what is this emotion? I can't tell. It's, it's a mixture of emotions, or it's some sort of emotion, and I can't quite tell what it is. But anyway, so you're just allowing, basically, the, the feeling to animate the body. So this is uh, uh, the basic premise from there. And then, of course, over the years, and that was, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago that I think that, that was being developed in that way, uh, as, I've, as I tell the story. Over the years, from that place, um, Michaela's developed it further. So it's, it's used a lot for trauma release, but it's also used just to connect to the body because it's sort of moving what you're feeling practice, which is one of the, one of the modalities of nonlinear. There's several. Um, it's great, of course, to get in touch with the body, et cetera, et cetera. And there's release modalities more directed towards trauma, releasing trauma or just tension and stress, et cetera. There's modalities to do with connecting to the bodily pleasure. So ways to connect to the subtle pleasure in the body and begin to move that. People use that a lot to come back to their bodies, to reawaken their you know, erotic feeling or sensual feeling, et cetera, which many people through stress, trauma, life, 
uh, can sometimes feel a little blocked in that regard. Uh, so, etc., uh, etc. Et but all of it grounded very much in her clinical practice over the last 25 years, 30,000 plus client hours, etc. So it's very grounded in that, used in that, if you want, forged in those kind of clinical situations. Um, now, of course, we offer teacher trainings on that. We have uh, over 100 practitioners of that, people using it in all kind of situations from um, refugee camps in Switzerland. We have a, a teacher there who works with um, people there, Syrian refugees. We have people working in uh, you know, in, in sort of old people's home. We have one lady who does it in old, old people's home with old ladies and, you know, sitting in chairs. And, mm -hmm. you know, yoga, a lot of yoga teachers use it actually mm -hmm. as a, as an adjunct to their yoga or part of a yoga class. Um, so it's really, that's what I was saying. A lot of teachers have been drawing upon other modalities for want of what it sounds like you're saying that. And I appreciate that I, when I said interpretive movement, I, I didn't mean it in the way that I hear it when you responded is that it is about, uh, it's about the feeling or coming into feeling and like the movement almost doesn't matter is what I hear you say. Right. Um, it does, well, the movement doesn't have to, the movement doesn't have to have any thematic resemblance to the feeling. Right. You're not trying to like show what you're feeling with the movements. Yeah. You're just yeah. letting how you being in your body and just some amount of movement to trying to feel that not trying to show something. That's what I hear you say. That's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it might show it, you know, you might think, gosh, that person looks angry and they might be, but it maybe not. So that's not the point of it. Yeah. Well, I guess my question about that is then like how much structure is there in those kinds of practices that are nonlinear or whatever, or they're Cohen's. So how much are you giving people in terms of move this body part or focus here and how much is it just their own exploration like eric Schiffman would just put music on and called it freedom style yoga and just said do whatever you want and or or do whatever you feel or i know other teachers who like somatic movers who will offer up you know points of inquiry like you're describing colons where it's like Oh, explore all the different places your knee could be over your ankle, and then you can explore that. So I'm kind of curious in terms of nonlinear movement or movement columns, how much structure is there and how much is it sort of open? Yeah. Well, um, of course, movement kind method and nonlinear movement method are really rather different. Okay. Um, I mean, I think they have certain certain maybe themes in, in common, this idea of inquiry over imposition, rather than imposing, uh, uh, using the method to impose something, uh, using, using the method to facilitate inquiry. I think that perhaps that philosophical root is the same for obvious reasons. Um, that's the case. But uh, how much structure is, is there? Well, let's take nonlinear, for example. Um, movement crime method, you have a structure, you know, you stand, you stand, we take on certain postures, this arm, certain this movements. way, this arm, this way yeah. at the same time, yeah. like you said, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a structure, but it's yeah. framed as an investigation as opposed to, um, uh, attain this movement pattern for, because, because that's somehow going to lead you somewhere. You will, of course, we're going to attain the movement pattern. We're going to learn how to learn and all that sort of thing. But it's, but what's so special about really one arm forward, one arm back? Nothing. What's so special about trick and ass? Nothing. Nothing really. I mean, well, maybe up, a lot of things. down, whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, maybe a lot of things are actually special about, about those things. But uh, what's even more special, you could say, or what's special in a, in a broader way is, is the journey of, 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 of that. 
or uh, what's anyway. happening within you while you're doing it or what the experience, what experience that's giving you and how that might inform you in some way. Yes. Yeah, so the, the faculty of sensitivity that one develops in feeling is portable. One's feelings are transient and in some ways influenced by what you had for breakfast, how much sleep you had. I mean, you, know, you can learn things from your feelings, but the more important aspect of cultivation is, is the sensitivity. Uh, because that will equip you to feel whatever else you feel afterwards, going into the future. Uh, so I think that's something what I'm saying. The inquiry uh, is is fundamentally a training in the faculty of, well, a lot of things, but one of them is sensitivity, the ability to feel, essentially, or or to perceive. And in nonlinear, yeah, there, there is a structure in the sense that one needs a container, in a class situation, certainly, one needs a container for a lot of reasons. The method, if you want, is an exploration, but the container contextualizes uh, that exploration. So, for example, the class starts and finishes at a certain time and on time. Uh, you are on a yoga mat. I mean, this isn't a class, right? A class scenario. You can do it on your rug, I guess, but you're, you're on your yoga mat. You have an area, basically, that you're on. You start on hands and knees, for example. There are cues given, moving what you're feeling, etc. Now, you're not told what to feel. You're not told how to move, uh, for example, but you are pointed towards your feeling and uh, invited to, you know, move, etc. Uh, music is played. That's chosen by the person who's running the class, for example. So this sort of a structure allows the person to go into their investigation, into their process. Containment, essentially, allows for that relaxation because people know what's happening. They know, they know what, if you want, the rules are, if you like. They know that it's starting and ending at the same time. They don't have to keep an eye on that. They know their area. They're given a certain um, set of instructions to to work with. So in that sense, the, the nonlinear part is the, is the fact that the movements aren't prescribed. Where, whereas something like yoga or even something like movement kind method, certain movements are prescribed. The prescribed movement is more linear, therefore. It doesn't make it worse. It's not better to be nonlinear. It's just a different way. And, and if it's contextualized as an exploration, then it's, it's basically performing the same function. It's just that they're nonlinear. Um, the movements are not prescribed. It allows the body to unwind and do all, the, all other sorts of things related to, you know, trauma release, etc., which are perhaps rather technical. That linear movement's not so good for that. So it has pros and cons. There are differences between linear and nonlinear. But as modes of inquiry, I, I'd see them as just two different tools, as opposed to, um, you know, which one's the best. Yeah, I get it. It seems like they both would be cultivating this sensitivity and embodiment. Um, and then there's just sort of like layers of like, uh, improvisatoriness, <laughs> you know, like as someone who did like improvised movement, postmodern movement stuff in my past. And I was always intrigued, you know, in certain rehearsal situations, you could get to a certain place improvisatorily while how you were moving. And then we always were like, how do we get that on stage in front of an audience? And like, you couldn't really do it because <laughs> there's a, a whole new dynamics would come into play. But there was certain levels you could give yourself signposts or little bits of choreography to go off of and then improvisatory sections. But then there was those pure improvisatory moments where you're completely released and something comes in from somewhere else that you could you could never have planned and that was sort of the goal to kind of reach those more improvisatory places where there's a receptivity and something coming in from somewhere that felt very magical yeah i think that's that's a very interesting example and yeah there there is something about um spontaneity 
and or as you put it improvisation um that can lead to those sorts of very creative places and you can be surprised then by yourself <laughs> wow i said that i did that by the universe that's, that's by smart. Life. yeah i suppose yeah. i guess i'm i'm curious now to kind of almost go back to where i paused on you sitting for long periods of time i'm curious when you're doing those long sits on youtube what's going on in you while you're doing it? Are you using mantras? Are you using certain techniques? Uh, and why? Why do you sit for those long periods of time? What are you hoping to get from those practices of long sitting? Yeah, those I think are such such good questions. So what are we talking about here? Well, on YouTube, you're right. I, I sometimes stream these long sits, one to four hour uh, sits, live stream. They're not just sit here on, on my boat and meditate and not, it's not that interesting um nothing I much love it. it's so anti because it's not it's just a guy sitting i love yeah. it it's great yeah so it's like nothing it's you know don't wait for anything to happen you know maybe i might you know breathe take a deep just, breath you're point. just waiting to feel like when is he going to call it when <laughs> when yeah. are we done <laughs> I, I heard some, someone commented recently a friend of mine and he said he scrolled through one of the four hours it's just to see you know if i passed <laughs> out or, <laughs> or see if i'd levitate or something you know <laughs> But yeah, actually, you know, you may, your questions are, are so um, important. And you also earlier asked, well, how does that square with movement? If one, you know, we're doing movement on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you're sitting there, it seems they seem anti or somehow uh, again, opposed in a way. And I think they can be. And it's certainly true that in the same way movement can be used, as we've discussed, this sort of imposition, uh, impositional approach, this kind of overlaying approach, self-punishing approach, etc. Maybe there's something to that. I'm, uh, I'm not saying that maybe we should ban that. If people want to want to do that, there should be places for them to do it. Go for it. Uh, meditation can be that way too. You sit there for a long period of time. Um, yeah, you can tough it out. You can you can definitely do that. Um, but that's not the only way. It's the same thing with like yourself being a yoga, you, you know, you, your yoga teachers like yourself, yoga practitioners like yourself can do marvelous things with the body that make, uh, you know, somebody like me, you know, looking at some of the amazing advanced yoga postures that I've seen Godfrey do, for example, or that you no know, doubt you can do, you look, look at that and you think, wow, you know, it's, it's amazing. How do you get there? Well, it's the same. Uh, it's the same. So if you want to sit for a long period of time, um, you can tough it out. Or you just grow into it. When I'm sitting for four hours, it's not painful. Sometimes there's a bit of discomfort in the thighs or in the buttocks, just the same way when, when one sits on a long-haul flight. But there's no stress on the joints. Um, the, mostly, the, when one acquires a meditation posture, uh, the main barrier to that, other than injury, is tension. Tension in the hips, tension in the body, you know, habitual tension. And so if, if one sits regularly and within one's comfort zone, gradually over time, the body kind of acclimatizes to it and the body just opens up gradually. You can, you can try to accelerate that process, but that's basically what I did. Just sit there regularly, have a regular meditation practice. Don't go into discomfort. Don't stress the joints. Gradually the body acclimatizes to the position. And also in the process of meditation, one tends to shed layers of physical, emotional, and psychological tension also. That, that's a typical process. Now, of course, is it possible to add mental, psychological, and emotional stress to oneself through the practice of meditation? Yes, absolutely it is. <laughs> In the same way it's possible to do that with yoga, it's possible to do that with anything. Yeah, it doesn't have to be done that way. So the body just opens. Um, as I mentioned, long sitting was something that 
my main, uh, one of my main meditation teachers, Shinzen Young, emphasized. This idea, it's um, done, I think, quite frequently in Zen and in other traditions as well, of just sort of sitting for, you know, however long. I think four hours is a sort of classic block that people do. It sounds, it sounds absurd, and, uh, but it's not. One just gets into it. I think about long-distance runners, uh, running as they do for all, uh, long distances, etc., jogging for all that. You know, there's a certain amount of just conditioning and fitness that one gets from doing that. And, you know, you can run a marathon. If, you try, if I try to go up right now and run a marathon, uh, I'm not going to get very far. Uh, similarly, if one tries to sit for a long period of time without experience, without the body having acclimatized to it, you're not going to get very far. Uh, but just as people can learn to run marathons, or uh, it's a similar thing. So what, what am I doing? Well, it depends. There, there's so many range. There's a range of meditation techniques that one can apply. Any meditation technique could be slotted into that. One that I often use is just feeling and relaxing. <laughs> feeling and relaxing. So there's this combination. This is not, I'm not going to say anything that meditators are going to need to write this down, right? But this is, you ask me what I'm doing. A lot of times I'm doing that, feeling and relaxing. So feeling has this attitude of, this aspect of wakefulness or being there, right? Freshness maybe. And relaxing has that sense of, well, relaxing. And if you relax too much, you can become dull and sleepy. So then you need the feeling or the wakefulness. Too uh, wakeful and so on, you start to tense up. So it's the bringing these qualities uh, together, and just just being there. Uh, that's often what I'm doing in a in a long sit like that. But what else might I be doing? Feeling body sensations, sure, mantras perhaps. Um, uh, doing um, you could do pranayama at least intermittently in a situation like that. Whatever your meditation practice is, you can you can do it. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, I get that. I guess I also get what you mean about like you can condition your body to sit. I had a long sitting practice for a long time and I kind of let go of it for now for a while. And I, I might go back to it again. I don't think there's anything wrong with long sitting. Like you say, like you can be sitting for a long time and like beating yourself up or you can be sitting for a long time and feeling and relaxing in a way that's very useful to you. So again, I don't think it's the sitting into itself. I guess my question is that why, why is it like, is sitting so important? <laughs> you know, like I've been having all these people on the show, even talking about Hatha Yoga Pradipika and how a lot of times they teach in yoga that the reason you do asana is so that you could be able to sit and that the seated posture in and of itself is specific. Like you need to be able to sit in order to experience samadhi. That's some people's view. Then I had other people on from, you know, other Buddhist traditions who are like, no, the Buddha said you can do it standing, walking, sleeping, laying down, or you can do it anyway, you know? So I guess I'm curious about that, especially because earlier you were talking about not imposing breath, not even telling people to regulate their breath, because that would in, impose upon them the idea that there's something wrong with their breath. So mm -hmm. to me, the idea sometimes, and again, doesn't have to be, but the idea of long sitting is that if you could do that, if you can make yourself sit in the way that you're describing, then you are going to then somehow have something that everyone else doesn't have or going to reach some higher consciousness or depending on the philosophical viewpoint, as we were saying earlier, you're going to be able to get to a place where you escape the cycle of rebirth or maybe not. Maybe you're finding cosmic order within to bring it back to your life. Could be a lot of different things, but the the emphasis on sitting for a long time 
sometimes I wonder, doesn't that put, become an imposition in the same way as telling people to regulate their breath might be? Yeah, it certainly can. You're right. And I should clarify and repeat, I didn't say that I don't tell people to regulate their breath because it implies some sort of um, problem with their natural breath. I didn't say that. I said that a st structured breath practice can carry with it the implication that there's something wrong with the natural breath. That's why we've got to do all these things to it. It can carry that implication. It doesn't have to, though. And that, that's why a sense of connecting with one's natural breath is a, a useful antidote um, to that misconception or to, to that implication. Maybe that put it that, put it that way. And now, some people do believe there's something wrong with the breath, so that's why we have to do things to it. So, okay, that's their view. But we're asking about the way I was seeing things and what I learned from Godfrey. And the idea there is that if the, with the basis of intimacy with the breath from that place, one can then proceed with whatever pranayama you like. Same with yoga posture practice. If one's got an ability to feel the body and one's with the body in a sense and, and one's practice progresses from that place or within that context and that's carried with it, then whatever weird and wonderful positions you'll do um, are going to be within that context. It's going to be not as an imposition upon the body in that way. So I think that's an important thing to say. I'm not against the structure. I'm not against the weird and wonderful wacky techniques. I think they're so wonderful. Uh, but you, in asking what I learned from Godfrey, it's the, it's the context of those uh, practices and techniques. Yeah. I get it. Uh, so anyway, uh, and so I suppose the answer, is therefore, is the same for sitting. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just because, you, you know, what are you going to get out of that? What's the point? Uh, can't it be an imposition? Yes, it can be an imposition. doesn't have to be, though. I tell you, I can tell you why I do it. There's lots of reasons people say to do it. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of long-standing tradition of this sort of longer sitting. Um, I do it because I like it, actually. <laughs> I enjoy it. Yeah. Really, that's the reason. And yeah. uh, I sit there, oh, it's so great. I really enjoy it. For me, what do I enjoy about it? Well, there's something intrinsically rewarding about the intimacy with experience that um, one of a portal what that sitting practice can be a portal to or can or can draw one's attention to i enjoy it for that reason that's why i said this i don't struggle it's not pain i'm not toughing it out it's not a demonstration of any kind of attainment it's i do it because i enjoy it and um certainly though one of the things that can happen with longer sitting is that uh, your various maneuvers and coping mechanisms, etc., can become somewhat exhausted. You run out of tricks three and a half hours in, usually. <laughs> you, because there, you know, there are ways you can get through. You run out of tricks. Eventually, you're going to have to feel, generally. Now, not necessarily, okay? There are definitely ways to check out for that period of time. But um, it, it gives you a lot of time to... Uh, it's like if you love somebody and you spend a lot of time with them and someone says, why do you spend time with them? Well, because it's like, you know, you already know them. Yeah. Like when you go happens. on vacation with somebody like a girlfriend or something, you travel yeah. with them and then you get to see if you guys really work together or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It, well, if you love somebody, yeah. you don't even have to be testing them. You just want to spend time with them and enjoy being with them. And there's something yeah. rewarding about that and the exchange, the intimacy, et cetera. It's the same way. So when I meditate, for example, um, part of part of the reason is this unvarnished contact with it's it's such a luxury with feeling of the body you know with the mind with the environment it's this intimacy with 
feeling, with sensation, with, um, with life, intimacy with life, you could say. And it's wonderful. It's like uh, the same reason you, as you say, go on holiday with, with a loved one for the pleasure of it, really. And where is it going to, what are you going to get out of it? What are you going to, well, we're going to deepen our relationship. We're going to go on holiday so we can deepen our relationship. And then after that, we'll have a deeper relationship. <laughs> and I don't know what we're going to do with that, but we're going to do something with that. And the same thing, oh, I'm going to get enlightened. And after I'm enlightened, you know, I, then what am I going to do? So I don't know about, I, I'm not attempting myself to get enlightened. I'm not, I don't consider myself on that, on that path, but I do enjoy uh, intimacy with life as is expressed through sitting. Now, did you, as you said, is it the only way to have intimacy? No, not the only way to have intimacy with life at all. There's many other things. I just happen to like that kind. And yeah, okay, if you're in certain systems and you want to get to samadhi, of course, Patanjali samadhi and Buddhist samadhi, those terms are not used exactly for the same thing. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, yes, maybe certain techniques, you do need to sit in a certain posture to regulate the subtle flows to reach this certain state of transcendence or absorption. I mean, they might be right about that, but so yeah, they could be right about that. Well, I appreciate I that. <laughs> I really appreciate what you're telling, saying. I, I, I think that if you're sitting for long periods is about intimacy of life or with life, I'm, I'm all for that, uh, I guess. And I, I was thinking back, you know, one of the things I always do when I get ready to talk to someone who has a podcast of their own is I like to go back and listen to their first episode because a lot of times it's the rawest, like <laughs> you get to feel like something about that person in their show that you don't get necessarily later on. And your first, like most first episodes are kind of dodgy. Even mine's dodgy. You know, you're trying to find your way. Yours is heavy hitter. You had Lauren Roche. I've been exchanging emails with Lauren for months now. He says he wants to come on. I haven't been able to nail him down yet, but in that conversation, you know, you really hit on like some big topics. You, you talked about how meditation can potentially be harmful to people or can also be beneficial to people. And he talked in that uh, talk also um, about like kind of the difference between like a guru disciple dynamic and this more I guess you have to say tantric where you're discovering an inner place of knowing, or there's a inner guidance that's coming. And I hear you in all these talks that you're having with people from different traditions, from renunciate traditions, from householder traditions, you're often sort of asking them kind of about um, what I've been really interested in, in terms of the, consciousness-based reality that a lot of these traditions are uh, based in. It seems like I've been born into, as I guess have you, although your experience is very different from mine, into a world that is kind of a postmodern world of randomness. I, I'm born into a Western culture of like reductionist scientific kind of overlays on everything. And I'm embracing these like indigenous cultures or other cultures that are, I'm an outsider to on some level because I have some kind of intuitive feeling or draw to them. And I've had what I consider to be kind of unexplainable or mystical experiences and all these practicing and exploring and bringing my attention to my experience. I've become aware of all kinds of different things. And for years, you didn't really talk about them. And some traditions, they say you shouldn't talk about this stuff. But 
is sort of that magic mystical component. And I guess I'm curious, I hear you asking about it and wanting to talk about it. I wonder how much of your practices have led to some of this and how do we, I don't know, it seems to me important to put yoga and meditation practices in that context. I've been using the word animism a lot because I don't know another word to use where it exists in a world where the world is alive and it is a manifestation of consciousness because without that frame, the practices, they take on a very different character and they don't serve the same purposes. At least that's the sort of hypothesis I've been going on. I'm curious when I say that to you, what are your, what are your thoughts given all the people you've talked to and sort of the questioning you've done around this as well? Yeah. What are my thoughts about that? Gosh, you've raised so many interesting, interesting points. I know there was a lot jumbled in there, wasn't there? Yeah. That's I good. don't no, always know great. how to talk about it even, because I guess it has to do with like, all right, I'll ask you straight out. Do you, do you believe in the idea of a soul? Do you believe in spirit and guidance from other beings like your ancestors? Can you talk to your ancestors? Is that something that you feel to be true? Or is that just superstition and religion? Right, yeah. Okay, so that's really interesting. You're, to that specific question, I would say, I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. And you're right that the cultural contexts, we're all embedded in cultural contexts. Of course, that's an obvious thing, I think. And um, our, our conditioning in that sense is, is informed not only by you know, school, school system, our parents, uh, friends, people we meet along the way, significant mentors we have can be very, very influential, books we read, etc. So we're very influenced, I think. I'm thinking at a young age, right? That sets up these kind of assumptions about how the world works. We talked about that earlier, about influences. One's influences are, you know, as likely to be John Locke as they are to be Shinzan Young. But do you know it? You know, do you know it? You know, Thomas Jefferson or something, maybe for an American. Do they, do they know it? How much of that is, is in their blood? Culturally speaking, I mean. And uh, yeah, it's very fascinating. Uh, as for all this sort of thing, ancestors, being to ancestors or channeling uh, spiritual beings, uh, I don't know. I know people claim to do that. And some people on the podcast, on my podcast, they talk about that. They have that experience. Um, they report that experience. Um, I can't do any of that. I can't do any of those things listed. I don't channel myself, spirit guides or ancestors, ancestral messages, etc. Um, for example, but uh, that doesn't mean that I don't reject it out of hand. Uh, I've never attempted to do that either. I should probably say that. <laughs> well, I guess though you have, I mean, from what I've heard you say today that there's been some kind of intuitive drive in you guiding decisions, hasn't there? Right. So you're talking now, yeah, the, uh, has there been an intuitive drive? Yeah, of course. I think we all have intuition. Now, is it in the Malcolm Gladwell blink sense, just un, unobservable processes of reason that lead us to that conclusion? So, for instance, uh, in that book, Malcolm Gladwell blink, he talks about um, how people, especially experts and so on, have a, they have an intuition, the fireman who just knows to duck. 
and then a fireball goes overhead. He couldn't have known that, but who knows? Malcolm Gladwell suggests, I think, in that book that there are maybe subtle things he's able to read on levels in his, you know, subconscious or unconscious mind that sort of emerges as a duck. <laughs> who knows how he got there? But if we could look at that level, we'd see it was, if you want, um, a logical series of, of uh, maybe inference or something like that. And uh, it's true, I think, that a lot of the ways we represent our decisions to ourselves are not um, always exactly what's in line with what's really driving us. We rationalize, in other words, we rationalize our decisions that are based on, I think, fundamentally a pleasure-pain calculation. We're trying to get towards the good and away from the bad. We don't always, for reasons we discussed earlier, like... Uh, we can't predict the future. We don't always know exactly, you know, we can have a faulty variables in our pleasure pain calculation, but I think that's always the general momentum of the organism to optimize its conditions, even if it's not, not always aware of how to do that. Um, the soul and so on. Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I don't know, but you I can feel free to it. press me more. You're, you're welcome to press me more. <laughs> I'm not trying to be evasive. I don't know how much more pressing there is to be had. I mean, I really, I guess I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going. It's sort of, you know, I know you're someone who has a show like me and you, you've brought these incredible people on to talk about their experiences and, like you say, report to them. And even just now when you were describing um, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, that is sort of like, a, let me explain to you how that happened, that intuitive moment. And it, to me, that's almost an example in a way of like a kind of more physicalist kind of way looking at it or something as opposed to, Oh no, I actually do feel that there are moments where I've gotten messages. There's been a few times in my life where like I was down on my knees and really needed guidance. And I felt that it came and it was just a strong message. Like people talk about voices in their heads. I didn't really hear it as a voice, but I definitely got a message from within. And those messages have been the most important moments in my life in a way. And I do believe that all these practices of sensitizing myself and listening and being in my body and open and intimate with life led to those moments of receiving those messages. And I guess I'm just sort of curious, like other people who engage in practices with the kind of passion and diligence like you, I'm just betting you've got to have had some kind of experiences like that before. And I think sometimes... It's kind of what I wrote to you in the initial email, the mainstreaming of yoga, and you kind of referenced it earlier, those things got so downplayed, like the contemplative aspect or the aspects of those kinds of experiences, those animate, what people would think of otherworldly, but I think of just natural experiences, um, they got, they don't sell as well. You know, you can't sell people on nebulous inquiries into the nature of your existence the same way you can sell them on strength and flexibility so i guess i've just been curious to hear people who engage in practices potentially share some more about these experiences in ways that we feel comfortable so that people would put yoga in that context more than the fitness context that it's kind of been relegated to a lot of times yeah well you know it's interesting you say that um I see what you're saying. You know, I brought up Gladwell to as, as as an example of exactly as you as you point out that kind of uh, scientific materialism, right? Is is as you as you point out an attempt to explain intuition, or or at least he makes he he, he raises the possibility of of that. Um, and yeah, and and is that? And I was attempting to say perhaps unclearly that is it that, 
or is is it higher powers or you know the soul of the ancestors and so on the, the high, you know the wisdom the wisdom consciousness or whatever christ consciousness or you know pleiades right <laughs> whatever you want to and call I, it yeah, yeah. And, I, and i was saying that i actually don't know but yeah. i find it very fascinating but as for of course experiences of that yes you know this idea of context i think we're coming back to something that we discussed earlier we could we could see it that way let's take something like yoga posture practice or as or pranayama they can be used they can employ they can be employed those same movements or same instructions can be employed in the service of many different masters they can be used as we pointed out it very broadly speaking uh, as a kind of imposition they can be used as an inquiry i mean it, there's more options than that just just to, to give something to, to think about and yeah people can use their meditation practices you ask me what I'm doing, you know, why do I meditate? You know, and I said, well, I like it. I'm not really trying to like get enlightened or anything like that. I do it because I like it. And then I said a bit more about what I like about it. But there's someone else maybe is sitting next to me, uh, let's say, sitting with me for whatever, half an hour, an hour or something like this. And uh, what are they getting out of it? Well, maybe they're trying to sharpen their concentration so that they can be more, um, you know, cutting edge in, in their uh, professional life. Or maybe someone is trying to relieve stress so they can, uh, you know, lower their blood pressure or be a nicer person to, to live with. Or maybe someone is attempting to pursue enlightenment, pursue um, a, a goal of enlightenment is conceived of in, say, a, a Buddhist tradition or, or something like that. And there are many different enlightenments, I think. Yeah, what in enlightenment means could be a lot of different things, huh? Yeah, yeah, but whatever, whatever they, they might be, so, someone's going for one of those somewhere in the world, probably at this moment with yes. their practice. So practices can be used in all those different ways. And sure, practices, as you're describing, can be used or can be in the service of, is maybe another way of saying it, um, connection with this intuitive realm that you're talking about, this intuitive that you're, you're so fascinated by, the mystical intuitive the mystery messages where is that coming from what is that is it me is it something else is where it does the connected? art come from where does it come from yeah exactly and that's i think a marvelous investigation that's a marvelous thing to to pursue and to unravel and i think yeah meditation yoga and so on these things are tools that are suited well suited to that kind of that kind of investigation and I think, yeah, most of us, I think, have had experiences of profundity of some sort, um, messages or strong intuitive feelings or profound sense of connection in nature, for example, or with a loved one or experience of transcendence, transcendence of one's limited identity, temporary, or some people, you know, claim a sort of permanent, don't they, transcendence from their limited identity. Uh, yeah, we have that. All of, I think most people have that. Now, not everyone will frame that in a, should we say, so-called spiritual context. I think the framing is... Um, but isn't that the frame of it? Not, not, not intrinsically. I mean, if someone's in nature and they just feel... Is what you know. Say, let's say we're let's say we're meditating together, and we're, we go out to nature, and we feel this oneness, right? And we say, I'm feeling a spiritual sense of oneness and transcendence. You know, I feel beyond myself. I feel, I feel some sort of sense of connection to a larger scope. I don't feel uh, me looking out. In some ways, I feel I'm being looked at from the trees, and I'm looking at the trees in this sort of two way, or everything is as it is. The sense of perspective from which I vantage point. Uh, appears to be dissolved and there just appears to be a happeningness a happeningness spontaneous 
emergence, a kind of happeningness, like a candle flame that's just exploding. Each second, each moment, a candle flame is always, is always coming into being a flame. Uh, it's continuous. It's the same flame as it burns down, but each moment is a sort of explosion of, of, of becoming. Life and death, both happening there in the candle flame. So there, there can be that tremendous tangible sense. Um, but I don't think that sounds like spirituality to me, what you just said. Yeah. Well, I think, it, yeah, you could say that, but I don't think, I think it's possible to have such an experience without con conceiving it in those terms. Of course, of course. But that's, that's sort of my point though. You can do yoga practices and meditation practices in a context that doesn't conceive it as, you know, means to have more intimate connection with the spiritual realm or whatever, or the spiritual existence. Um, but when you look at the traditions and the teachers, it, it seems to me that's what most of them are talking about, whether you're trying to transcend it or whether you're trying to embrace the cycle of rebirth and integrate into it and feel the joy of it. It's still ultimately like a spiritual <laughs> phenomena, your life and the practices are about an awareness about that. Oh, I, I guess I'm asserting that it doesn't have to be true. I love the way you don't want to get pinned down. It so goes with your show. I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, I don't know the answer is the truth. I don't yeah. know what, 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 it, what it's all about and the soul and, and enlightenment. I don't know that I'm aware of the different views. And that's maybe one of the reasons I have a show is because I, I, I can tolerate that ambiguity. Yeah. Um, but uh, to a certain extent, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're making a couple of points here. What has yoga historically been used for? How has it historically been framed in the cultures in which it developed and grew and then moved around in? That's a question that's for religious scholars um, and historians and so on and so forth. And there are many, we have many great, great uh, figures like that, right, who are working in, the, in this, just to say yoga, for example, you know, your field, there are many great scholars investigating yeah, that. Yeah, like where does hot yoga really come from and where do the poses actually yeah, come from? Yeah, yeah, all that's happening. They debate that, yeah. What, what, what did a yogi uh, 300 years think they were doing uh, compared to a yogi today and so on? And I don't know, of course, um, uh, you know, I mean, well, when I say I don't know, what I mean is there are many different views about, about that and it's, it's a great mystery and it's very fascinating. Um, but as for what's it really about, that's a rather different question. What's it really about? Never. Maybe they were wrong 300 years ago. Maybe, you know, the 400 years ago they had it right. And then they got lost, you know, 350 years ago, they got lost somehow and it got kind of their version of commercialized and <laughs> who knows, you know, so I I, who knows, uh, uh, what it's, what it's really all about. I think many, I suppose I'm attempting to say can be used for many different things in the service of many different views, many different inquiries. It's up to the individual. And even if the individual does not know why they're doing it, they can't articulate it. Evidently, as you pointed out, something is motivating their engagement with meditation or yoga or whatever the case may be. What is that? I think it's a very fascinating question. Well, I love that you're leaving it as a question and, and offering up lots of possibilities and not necessarily asserting one answer. It feels very appropriate for what you're about and what we've talked about today and what your show has been about, which I don't know if I said the title Guru Viking. Everybody listening to this should absolutely be going and listening to Guru Viking. It's really wonderful. And I also just think it brings me back a little bit to what you said at the very beginning with your mom and about like having a personal faith as opposed to like some kind of formal theology that's imposed upon you. Um, it seems like that holds true across all the traditions. Like 
that there are certain teachers who teach that, that there's the guru within you and that you're going to make some determinations from within about your path. And that's the authority as opposed to an external authority. And I hear you doing that. seems like that kind of self-empowerment or I don't know, it's a longer podcast to talk about self, but the idea of it's not imposed upon you, but you are going to discover it from within seems to me to be a big part of what you're about. And I hear it in this conversation and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yes. I would, I would, I must say, I think that I would say it's a relationship to the structures and theologies that is the, is, is the, is the difference in frame, not the frames that the, the, the structures and, and theologies themselves per se. So I think what my mother was trying to get at was that one can use the ritual of the mass or relate to the ritual of the mass, the puja of the mass, if you like, as um, from a contemplative point of view, as opposed to using it as a statement of one's philosophical or religious membership to a group, something like this. So, um, yeah, I think that's what it comes down to is that, but one still attends the mass, the structure of the mass, which you could argue is imposed upon you, or you submit to it, you submit to a training, perhaps in a skill or meditation or yoga, you know, you enter into that training. And uh, it is imposed upon you in, in a, on a certain level. Um, but one's relationship to that process is, I think, the key frame difference. This there can be a habit, I think, of saying, well, what is it, structure or no structure? Is it external authority or internal authority? Which one is it? Uh, I think, surely, there is an interaction between both. External authority can only becomes oppressive and self-denying, perhaps, or, or, you know, in a way, but an entirely inner, um, it it's becomes almost narcissistic or solipsistic. There has to be some sort of interaction between uh, the inside and the outside, or maybe even eventually, uh, seeing through that dynamic, certainly certain uh, spiritual traditions do, you know, propose that that maybe some subject-object, inside-outside, it's a lens, it's a, it's a works at a level of resolution. But looking a little deeper, those dividing lines are are less; they're more porous than they initially seem, and perhaps even just themselves imposed <laughs> you know, on the situation. So, I think it's this mystery, this investigation, this inquiry, in a certain sense, open to the inner and the outer. Um, navigating between those two uh, positions uh, as best one as best one can, and, and why? Well, who knows why? The why is up to the individual. Why for me? Because I like it. I enjoy it. <laughs> I'm afraid that's it. No, that's so good, Steve, and that's a perfect place for us to end today. I really, you know, for all of my fancying of like non-dualist ideas, I always frame things in dualistic ways. And I just appreciate you opening it up and saying, Hey, it's not internal authority, external authority. There's all those things at play. I do think some of the bigger things that you've talked about today, even that at the very beginning, that idea of like a, a nurturing care and compassion basis as a substrate uh, seems important, but Yes. What I love most is that I do think that these are contemplative practices. And that's why I'm sort of passionate about like putting them back into that frame, whether they're movement practices or seated practices or pranayama practices, that the contemplative frame is where I feel like they really give society and people the, the boons, the power of it. Uh, and so 
again, thanks so much for, for doing this and for putting that out into the world. And again, everybody go listen to Guru Viking. It's been so fun to do this with you, Steve. And I hope you wouldn't mind if I reached out to you again to touch base. We didn't even get into like behind the scenes podcasting stuff, but I'm glad we were more on the substance of what you're actually doing and what your experience is. Cause that I think is more vital than just podcast or insider stuff. So thanks again. This has been really great. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you, Jay. And, I, and it's such an honor to be on the Jay Brown podcast. Wow. I mean, that's really cool. So I, I'm very honored. Thank you for the invitation and the amazing discussion. Thank you. You're very welcome. I'll be in touch with you, okay? Great. Cheers. And there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. Steve, really, he lived up to the alter ego I associated him with that was created in my childhood head. He lived up to it because his take on things and our conversation about it today, it it speaks to something in me that has to do with more openness around different philosophical viewpoints a certain maturity, I think, maybe wisdom, where I don't hold my views in such a rigid way and the inquiries are allowed to thrive more fully because of that. I get that feeling and that kind of inspiration from Steve. So very cool. If you haven't checked out Guru Viking podcast and his website, there's links in the description. I I highly encourage you to do so. I think it would be worth your while. It was really great to meet you, Steve, and I look forward to speaking to you again, sir. And I'm looking at my little calendar here that tells me what podcasts are coming up next and I'm I'm smiling because I I know I've got some good stuff coming your way. So stay tuned for stuff, okay? Cause we got some good stuff coming. And you know <laughs> I uh like I said in the intro, I'm not I'm not really doing so great right now and I hesitate to talk about stuff because in the past I was just a little too much. In fact, I recall someone once referring to me as the king of TMI. (laughs) If you don't know TMI, too much information. And, you know, I, I just, I don't want to feel like I'm being masturbatory or something. But the truth is I really am having a hard time right now. And, If you are someone who sticks around here all the way to the end, if you're someone who's been around listening to the show regular for long enough, you might remember there was a time when I was moving from Brooklyn where I was really in trouble and scared and I really needed help. And I, and I asked you, I asked the listeners, I asked the listeners to, um, pray for me 
I asked them to put in a good word from God. <laughs> you know, I needed some help. And, and I think a lot of people did. I think a lot of people who are listening, I think they prayed for me. I believe that. And I believe that their prayers mattered. And you know what? Those, those prayers came true. <laughs> you know, the universe like provided for me at a moment when I really needed it to. And I'm afraid that I'm, um, I've got another ask. <laughs> you see, my daughter's having trouble. It was only a few months ago that Annabelle was on the show. And she, she wrote that meditation for us. And that song, she, we recorded the song that you did. Well, in the last two weeks, Annabelle's really shifted and there's something that she's really dealing with. She's having anxiety attacks and she's hypersensitive and, and it's really scary. It's really scary and it's torture to see her suffer and didn't feel helpless to, to make it better. And, you know, we're, we're seeking some help and we're working through it. It's just been a few weeks, but it just, it's so draining and my heart is just breaking. So, listen, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just maybe put in some prayers, if you could maybe send some angels Annabelle's way because she really needs them right now. <sighs> Shucks. <sighs> I'm sorry, I don't I don't know if I should even use this. the truth. It's what's happening. It's the truth. It's what's happening. And you see, that's what I have to, I have to, I have to be focused on what's taking place, what's real, because when I project into the future, I'm not perceiving what's happening, <laughs> right? Isn't that what yoga teaches us? If I project into the future, I'm not perceiving what's happening, and if I perceive what's happening, I can see my little girl is going through an ordeal. And that's what needs to take priority. So, I don't know. I know a lot of other parents right now who also have kids who are dealing with mental illness right now. I know I'm not the only one. And we should talk about it. So that's why I'm saying this, okay? I'm saying it because it should be talked about. Because we know we've learned something, right? About traumas, we gotta be able to at least <laughs> admit them, admit the, admit the wounds. The wounds have to be acknowledged if we're gonna heal them. So, thank you for listening to the show and for anyone who chooses to offer a prayer thank you i believe it helps
And I sincerely hope that you're okay and that your children are okay. And I have, I have faith. See, that's it. I do have faith. I have faith that if I am patient, she can get through this. We can get through this. Okay. I'm going to leave it there. I know that it feels weird. I feel like I don't want to just leave it like that, but I don't know where else to leave it because that's where it is. So thanks again for listening to the show. I will try to get my wits about me, and I hope that you're keeping your wits about you. And at the very least, let's be kind, okay? Let's be kind to ourselves. Let's be kind to others, and I'll talk to you again soon. Please take care.